I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of I-94 here on WLPN. As always, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hey, Jim. And today we have the distinct pleasure of speaking to the author of a new book out from Norton. It's called The Planter of Modern Life. Lewis Bromfield and the Seeds of a Food Revolution. Stephen Hammond joins us live from New York. Stephen, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Uh, so this is an interesting nonfiction book, just to give people some background before we kind of dive into the specifics of it. Uh, Louis Bromfield, uh, at one point, was one of the best-selling authors in American letters. Uh, he contributed to uh, Golden Age Hollywood movies. He was a popular magazine writer. He contributed to newspapers. And today, uh, I hasten to say, he's almost forgotten. Never uh, heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> book. We, we were talking about this beforehand. His, his name had no impact on us at all. Um, I think <laughs> I'd like to start there. Um with the admission that, you know, one of the reasons I was really interested in this book is I happen to be a keen amateur gardener. And, uh, you know, I had known of Lewis Bromfield's work from his work with uh, soil conversation, uh, soil conservation, I should say. I had no idea that he was a well-known novelist at all. Can you tell us a little bit, first of all, how you came to Mr. Bromfield as a subject and maybe speak a little to why uh, he is not remembered uh, in the same breath as Ernest Hemingway or some of his contemporaries who at one point he was compared to? Yeah, of course. Um, well, I was in your exact position about five years ago. I had just moved to Pittsburgh and, um, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm something of a, a generalist. Um, and I, uh, I, I, I've always wanted to write a book, but I was looking for a kind of juicy story that I could really sink my teeth into. And, I happened to be interviewing, I, I, I had just moved to Pittsburgh uh, for my wife went there to grad school. Uh, so I'm, I was in this new place and I was kind of like digging around looking for a story. I met a lamb farmer who himself is like an elder statesman in the world of sustainable agriculture. And he mentioned that one of the things that inspired him and his wife to get into farming in the I guess this was the 1970s, was um, Louis Bromfield and his book, his books. And I had never heard of the guy. I had never heard of him in his, you know, as a novelist, nor as a kind of uh, farmer or environmental thinker. And I did a, you know, a cursory Google search, and I just fell down this marvelous rabbit hole. Um, and I couldn't believe that somebody had kind of bridged these two two worlds that felt to me very distant, agriculture and literature, and two places, because Bromfield spent half of his life in, in France and the other half, not far from where he was born, um, in rural Ohio. He moved back there to start his, his, his experimental farm. So, you know, he seemed to connect these things that for most people I think exist in, 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 in very uh, kind of disparate places. And that was immediately very appealing to me. So the fact that he had been forgotten and the fact that his life was perched between literature and agriculture excited me. And then the research kind of began from that point. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty I, – I, I studied the moderns when I was an undergraduate. And his – you know, he was connected with the Fitzgeralds, with Hemingway, with Gertrude Stein. Yeah. Um, so many of the, you know, the people that are revered and studied – I wanted to ask you, and I, I know this is a little off off the track here, but did you ever read any of his novels? Uh, I, I was I work for Chicago Public Library. We don't have very many. Yeah, man, I looked too. Yeah, in the collection, and I also looked on books and print. A lot of his stuff is out of print. Were you able to read any of his novels? Absolutely. I mean, you can find you know there are cheap used copies of his books because millions of them were printed in his time. But it's true, most libraries don't you know keep them in circulation. Uh, a lot of stuff is out of print. Uh, the novels are interesting. I mean, you know, uh, like, I think that Bromfield, as much as he was a kind of modernist in his approach to, to agriculture and the environment, was maybe a little bit behind his, uh, the times relative to people like Hemingway, for instance, whom, you know, he hung out with a lot in Paris in the, in the, in the 20s. Um, but... Um, that's part of the reason why I think his literary work doesn't endure 
Um, but, but the novels were interesting both in themselves and as a kind of window into his evolution uh, from a, um, you know, a storyteller who kind of had an interest as, a, as a, almost like a hobby in, in uh, gardening and horticulture to somebody who, uh, you know, for whom the garden and the farm is the most important thing in life. Oh, and he almost brings uh, a kind of artist sensibility to his agricultural work. So there's a, there's a kind of flipping that happens over the course of his life. Oh, I was just going to say, to put it into context uh, for listeners, Chicago Public Libraries, they have one of the biggest collections in the country, no? One of the biggest right. public, yeah. Sure. And, uh, and, and Brumfield, when he, um, when he was writing it simultaneously or uh, contemporaneously with Hemingway and Fitzgerald, he outsold those guys by quite a bit, I think. So much so that Hemingway had some disparaging remarks yeah. about him. Well, we were talking before the show started um, about another novelist uh, who's not from the Midwest, Frank Yerby. We, we talked about him a little while ago. He was an African-American author who actually went to Spain and wrote romances. But Mike and I had been chatting. There, I was there are, thinking of him, too. When yeah, I was reading about there are a him. number of authors mm-hmm. in that period who uh, were largely from the Midwest that now seem to be forgotten. Uh, unless yeah. you're actually in this yeah. area of the country. And I, again, I don't want to get too far off from Louis Bromfield, but I wonder if you had any thoughts about why that might be. Uh, I'm thinking specifically, you know, Sherwood Anderson is somebody you never really hear about unless you're in Chicago. Yeah, or you're reading about uh, Gertrude Stein and the, Correct. the expats. Yeah. Right. Is there is there a reason for that, Stephen? I don't know. I mean, to some extent, that's uh, it, it, it's such a fascinating question of why one, one artist one one writer kind uh, kind of uh, has staying power and others don't. I, I'm not exactly sure what the role of kind of the critical establishment is. What the what the role of like uh, you know popular uh, attention is like. I mean, Bromfield had um, you know as you noted, all of his books were bestsellers, but his critical esteem changed very dramatically. In the 1920s, the New York Times said that he was, you know, essentially the best of all the young American novelists writing in that period. Um, But by the 40s, um, critics like Malcolm Cowley and Edmund Wilson and the lead um, critic for the New York Times, uh, Orville Prescott, turned very strongly against him. and I think that, and, and this may not pertain to some of the other Midwestern or other kind of uh, novels from his generation that you mentioned, but um, in Bromfield's case, because he had this second identity, which ended up becoming more important as a farmer, he kind of confused the critical establishment, and they thought that he wasn't a serious artist because he was also dabbling as a, as a, as a gentleman farmer. That's what they considered him to be when... In fact, what he was doing was um, a lot more serious than that. Yeah, and he has a pivotal role, actually, in the American diaspora over in Paris in the interwar period, which was fascinating to me. He, he held a large salon at a house that he had rented uh, that was uh, populated every weekend by really the mover and shakers of the arts and political community of that time. And that was something I didn't yeah. know about Bromfield at all either. Uh, and that, to me, in a weird way, seems to be one of the most um, interesting things about the man. He became very interested in farming in that period in France because he became interested in the food when he was serving in the war as an ambulance driver. Uh, but the mm-hmm. fact that he was such connect, uh, such a piece of connective tissue between a lot of these people who were hanging out in France just before the outbreak of World War II and some of his thoughts on uh, the Nazi regime and the Vichy and all that, it strikes me that he, in a weird way, was a more important figure in this kind of connective way of getting people together to talk about these things in a sense than he was more of a writer. And the fact that this also became the time when he was so invested in learning how to farm the French way, he was making uh, salad gardens in his backyard, he was, he was, again, preparing these large feasts out of what he grew. That, to me, in a weird way, is almost enough of in itself to, you know, cement his reputation as somebody that was a great person to connect these disparate threads of the arts culture. 
Absolutely. You know, um, his very good friend, Edith Wharton, who had a house and, a, and, a, and, uh, and, and very formal, elaborate gardens uh, nearby Bromfield's place in Saint-Lys, uh, once said that she thought her gardens were better than her books. Now, I actually don't think that's true in Wharton's case. Um, uh, but um, in, in Bromfield's case, I think it was true. Um, I think that the garden that he built in France, the farm that he created in the Midwest, and the way that he kind of used those places as, as, as like a, a nexus for new ideas and connecting all types of people, absolutely, that's it more important. That's a, that's a more important legacy culturally than than his kind of literary work. Um, I agree with you. You know, um, we were talking just a minute ago about the mysteries of of why certain writers fall off the map. But I I actually think your book does it, it doesn't speculate directly on on why that mm-hmm. happened. But I think when you lay it all out. Uh, and you follow the story, and you read about his his um, his gallivanting. You, you can kind of see why. I mean, he. Uh, I feel like he he alienated himself to a certain extent, and we can we could talk about that later in the show when we get to well, the latter tying, half of the book. Tying in with that, you know, he was in France, part of you know what I would call the movable feast crowd, you know, from the Hemingway yeah. book. Yeah. Um, and then he was like, I came to France to have this American, like, farming style, and then he decided that he didn't want this, like, cosmopolitan existence um, there and just chose to move back to Ohio. And so I think that... Yeah, well, it was like he, he really relished being the guy who got his hands dirty when he was with the literary people. And when he was with the agricultural mm-hmm. people, he really relished being, you know, the, the keen thinker who, who was more educated than everybody else. And like, so he, right. he kind of <laughs> always, he was putting himself uh, above people. He, he was, a, he was a really conflicting character to me. I, it was a love hate thing for me with, uh, yeah. with Bromfield. Uh, did you, did you have feelings about his character when you were doing the research? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there was a, um, his sundry interests, you know, his kind of dilettantism, his desire to have a hand in everything, um, you know, his, the fact that he was often in love with the sound of his own voice, that he's, that he kind of is so infatuated with the kind of romanticism of whatever lifestyle he's, yeah. he's chosen, you know, I, that that grates after after a, a, a while, but I, I think it's connected to the very things that made him so great and, and alluring as well. So you know, it's and, and, and there's also a comic side too, um, as when uh, you know um, he was friends with the playwright and novelist Edna Ferber, and would often like walk around his garden, you know dropping references to aristocrats and like fertilizer brands. And she once said to him, like, Louis, you know, brush the caviar off your blue jeans. You know, <laughs> like there was like that was the kind of guy we were dealing with. And I mean that made him very interesting to me as a as a subject for a biography. Whether that made him like insufferable after a certain point as a somebody to hang out with, I think it depends on your, your sure, perspective. Yeah. yeah. Right now, let's actually take a second and listen to some of Stephen's writing. Uh, we are speaking to Stephen Hammond. He's the author of a brand new book called The Planter of Modern Life. It is about the author and agrarian Louis Bromfield. In fact, we're going to choose a little section uh, just introducing uh, Louis's uh, take on French parlor society. And they're going to be right back speaking more with Stephen about this book. You're listening to I-94. He remembered arriving at the party with F. Scott Fitzgerald and thinking that they did not belong there, that they were both slummers in this crowd. Success was the problem. Their books sold too well. Their stories appeared in magazines that were too big and lowbrow, the sort Ezra Pound referred to as Ladies' Home Urinal and Vanity Puke. In short, they had money, so they were able to rent grand apartments on the stuffy right bank. They felt more at ease on that side of the river, drinking cocktails at the bar of the Ritz, than in this world of self-conscious bohemianism. 
It wasn't the dampness and poverty of Mount Parnassi they minded so much as the quantity of Americans. The dollar had recently doubled in value against the franc. Hyperinflation was good when you wanted a second bottle of champagne, but less good when you saw your countrymen swanning around Paris with a hundred franc notes pasted onto their suitcases in place of steamer tickets. The Dome and the Select had been invaded by tourists, or Neanderthals, as Fitzgerald called them, with the human value of Pekingese bivalves, Cretans, goats. The Americans gathered in this room, however, were of a different species. Bromfield was amused by the appearance of a short, stolid woman with close-cropped gray hair who walked into the atelier like a distinguished Roman empress, but who looked like she had just knocked off a second-hand shop. She wore old doughboy boots, gray army-issued wool socks folded over the laces, an aviator's cap made of leopard skin, a heavy pink crepe de chine dress, and a khaki sweater fastened at the throat by a sunburst brooch. Gertrude Stein knew to dress in layers because it was always freezing in Ford Maddox Ford's studio, where the only heating came from a very small oil stove. To stay warm, you drank. Ford liked to set out fancy liqueurs and French brandies next to bootleg gin brought back from a recent trip to New York. A gramophone played some old pre-war ballad like My Melancholy Baby, but it was usually drowned out by the talk, or more specifically, by the opinions of the assembled expatriates. By now, they had become famous for their opinions. They could tell you why Dada was silly and why Joyce was not, and what the best brand of cognac was and whether prohibition would ever end, which was just another way of wondering when they would go home. Or maybe they would never go home. They had all come to Paris meaning to be writers or painters or singers, having fled the materialism of America in order to grow and express themselves, Bromfield later wrote. Quote, Nearly all of them lived in tiny rooms or chilly apartments on the left bank on small allowances sent from good, solid, middle-class American families. Most of the day and a good part of the night they spent at sidewalk cafes talking about the work they meant to do. There was some free love involved and now and then a case of adolescent alcoholism, but one had the feeling that most of them worked at these things, driven by the sheer determination to be bohemian. It was all rather like a game played by children, with the same gaiety and pretense, on the whole a pleasant, tinselly world, while it lasted. Unquote. The air in the two-level studio on the Rue Notre-Dame-de-Champs was dark and smoky, the atmosphere full of hearty alcoholic laughter, horseplay, and petting. Broomfield easily identified Ford, tall, tweedy, walrus-mustached, and fat in a soft, blubbery way. He was given a dancing, or at least to his own approximation of dancing, which involved prancing and gasping for air through his false teeth. The originals had been knocked out by a German shell in 1916. Ford was not surprised to discover that Bromfield came from Ohio. The Midwest, he said, was then seething with literary impulse. Eight out of every ten manuscripts he had received as editor of the Paris-based Transatlantic Review seemed to come from west of Altoona. Among the many Midwestern writers at the party was a well-built 26-year-old who seemed to Bromfield a bit shy around so many spectacular people. He had a thick mustache and perfect teeth. He was in the middle of a conversation with Stein when Ford walked up behind him, placed a heavy hand on his shoulder, and wafted him away. Young man, he said, pulling rank, it is I who wish to speak to Gertrude Stein. Ernest Hemingway could not have enjoyed being brushed aside like this. An ex-newspaper man, only too recently committed to full-time fiction career, he was still largely unknown beyond the literary journals of the left bank. As much as it killed him, he needed to cozy up to writers with connections, especially the ones in this room, Ford, Fitzgerald, and the new guy Bromfield, who had just swept into Paris after publishing two successful novels, and who would soon be singled out by the New York Times as, quote, the most promising of all the young American authors writing today. And that was a selection from Stephen Heyman's The Planter of Modern Life, Louis Bromfield, and the Seeds of a Food Revolution. It's out now from Norton. I'm sure it's available at good bookstores everywhere. And as always, we want to thank our reader, Shanna Van Volt. We want to thank the International Anthem Recording Company as well for providing the music. It was by Crush Love today. So thank you very much to them. Uh, Kind of moving on, you know, I think Mike alluded to it, Stephen, just before the segment that we heard. He, when he comes back to America, he returns as something of um, a conquering hero, but also a big blowhard. I think Mike, you know, says he, he, he thinks he knows more than everybody else. And one of the things that did strike me is he was very prescient about World War II. He was prescient about Neville Chamberlain. He was extremely outspoken about. He was prescient about the threat of the Nazis. He was prescient uh, in many ways. About American involvement. American involvement. Yeah. Uh, he was also prescient about the fact that uh, America's food supply was going to be threatened. Oh, yeah. But <clears throat> there is a point when uh, he, he seems to tip. And to me, that was kind of... Um, 
what's the word I'm looking for, a fulcrum in your book, where he goes from being a widely respected uh, thinker to somebody that is being accused of hysterical uh, conduct and you know claiming there's going to be this massive famine. <laughs> Uh, when in reality, I think you kind of give him the doubt in the book and say, you know, maybe the fact that he alerted so many people to the fact that the Secretary of Agriculture didn't know what he was doing at this point yeah. may have actually solved the situation. I saw this as, in a way, a high point of, of Louis's career. He's a, a very famous novelist. He's writing in Hollywood. He's consorting with all sorts of stars. He doesn't even remember Ann Sheridan's name, and he's hanging out with her, for example. And, and he's uh, making, you know, major news. He's doing. He's uh, talking to Congress. He's talking to Congress. Yeah. So, can you talk a little bit about this time? And, and am I correct in thinking that this is kind of the point where the bloom goes a little off the rose for Mr. Bromfield? I I think that's absolutely correct. Um, you know. It, it, by the, he, he left Europe kind of disgusted. Uh, he saw what was coming. You're, you're right. And he, and, and, and he was on record, by the way, uh, years earlier, um, kind of seeing uh, fascism as an unambiguous threat when other people were a little bit more, um, you know, curious or ambivalent about it. Um, but he was, you know, he was disgusted with appeasement, and because he had spent so long in in in, in France, um, he was a natural kind of person to comment on European affairs um, when he returned to America in 1938, and he formed a kind of uh, a, um, a friendship with um, Eleanor Roosevelt initially um, uh, over their mutual like love and support for France after. Um, the occupation, um, and she spoke for various charitable groups that he was involved with. But the fact that this guy, one of America's great literary stars, decided not to settle in New York or Washington or Los Angeles, but instead go back to the land and start farming in a big way, it, it gave him a lot of attention and credibility um, as a kind of voice on agriculture. But as much as he got that attention for what he was doing, I think he, he, he like took it too far almost and kind of made himself a, uh, like a self-pronounced expert on agricultural matters. And I think you're absolutely right that he was, he was correct to kind of point out big problems in the wartime food system, which, um, which did lead in the short term to shortages, but his, um, he got so sour on the New Deal um, and on the FDR administration and it's, uh, what he thought to be the, the, its kind of um, all, the, all the red tape and unnecessary bu bureaucracy um, that, they were, that they were somehow endangering the uh, home front. That he took a very hard line. Um, he, he said that the country was going to experience food famines, that it was going to be worse than um, some of the things that countries in Europe were experiencing in the midst of the war. And he actually became a laughingstock when those uh, dark predictions turned out not to be uh, true. Um, and I don't know whether he ever entirely recovered uh, the prestige that he had um, before the war. So, so you're, I think that's a, a very good reading. I was, that reminds me now of when like celebrities take up environmental causes and, and the, yes. the right wing <laughs> press will just assassinate. What does a celebrity know about blah, blah, blah? They fly airplanes anyway. But, um, I want to step back a little bit and I was going to ask you about this earlier, but I want to talk about, uh, my favorite chapter of the book and if I make sure I'm saying this right, was Tetched. Is that how you, is that, yes. that's, can we talk a little about it about about Phoebe Wise, uh, Louis's uh, eccentric distant cousin? Will you just tell our readers a little bit about her and how she affected his life? I thought she was a fascinating character. She only had a few pages, um, but I always yes. I always kind of latch onto the weirdos. So well, she she really resonated throughout the entire book. I think that concept of touch yeah. is something that that you also bring up and really stays with him in his farming his entire life. I'm happy you guys thought so, um, because I think that is like a key concept in, in, in the book. And uh, it comes from Phoebe, this, um, this uh, distant cousin of Bromfield, a person who I actually suspected wasn't real until I found evidence of her existence in, 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 in newspapers 
from around the turn of the century. Um, well, there's a portrait of her, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she was a hermit, um, who lived in a kind of rundown cottage on the outskirts of Mansfield, Ohio. She lived alone, uh, well, not entirely alone, because she invited kind of like wild, tamed animals into um, into her house, and they hung out on her porch. Uh, there was a, a white horse that used to guard her house, um, and she and she had this big jungly garden um, in front of the cottage. And Bromfield's father was a kind of small town uh, politician, and he spent a lot of time canvassing um, and would travel from house to house and farm to farm. And Bromfield met a lot of people um, and heard a lot of great stories um, through this kind of childhood experience. Uh, but one of the people he met was, was Phoebe. And um, he was playing in her garden one day, playing with her uh, pet horse, um, and there was something in the way that he was connecting with the animals, something about the way that he kind of blended into this natural landscape that made Phoebe say to Bromfield's father, you know, Charlie, that boy is Tetch. And, um, you know, the word is it's some kind of rural variant on the word touch, meaning a little crazy, but Bromfield took it to mean something different, a kind of mystical connection to the natural world that seems kind of crazy if you don't have it yourself. But if you're, if you feel that way, it can be the thing that, that, that ties you to nature. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think that there are a lot of other people, whether it's kind of like, you know, John Murr running out in an earthquake, you know, thrilled by the magnificence of nature or, uh, throw Walden Pond or Johnny Appleseed or, you know, there, there are lots of figures I think who embody this uh, concept. St. Francis is another one. People who seem a little crazy because of their connection to the earth. And Bromfield thought this trait, this kind of uh, close, intimate link to nature was essential for good farmers. Um, so he kind of built up a whole philosophy around it. And just to, you know, before we go to our break here, uh, I want to remind everybody that, you know, where we're at in the story here with Stephen, uh, Louis has gone back to Ohio. He forms a rather large farm called Malabar, which he's going to try to run as both a, a model. He's got something he calls the plan, uh, but he really wants to make this not only a model for small farms, but for farms across America. He has this dream of returning American farming to this kind of Jeffersonian ideal. But before we go to break, uh, real quick, Stephen, one of the things that we should point out is that many of the experiences that Louis had on a farm when he was growing up, in fact, were not positive at all. His his family yeah. were rather awful farmers. And uh, one of the <laughs> things you, you point out in the book is that, in a sense, he's kind of chasing redemption for the fact that uh, farm life when he was growing up was almost always a failure. Well, um you know, Bromfield idolized his maternal grandfather, who was actually a wonderful farmer. But the, the, the realities, the economics of kind of small scale independent farming in that time, similar, I guess, in some respects to some of the economic hardships that farmers face today, made it practically impossible for a, for a, a, a family to support themselves um, on a, on a small general farm. There was mechanization, there was consolidation, there were all these big economic trends that were changing the kind of fabric of farming and making this Jeffersonian agrarian ideal, which was always, you know, something rather problematic, um, you know, pretty uh, impossible. Uh, but Bromfield thought he saw flashes of it in his grandfather's existence. And he wrote a, a kind of romantic uh, pay-on to the agrarian existence, his 1933 book, The Farm, which is still kind of influential among a certain set of farmers today. I think that book was important to people like Wendell Berry. But uh, anyways, um, he, uh, he, he was so in love with 
the world that his grandfather had created and so attached to the idea of farming that he actually dropped out of college to go back and try to save his, his, his grandfather's farm. But he couldn't make the economics work. And then he left Ohio and the farming life in kind of disgust to go to New York, study to be a journalist, and then he went to the you know, World War One, and became an ambulance driver, and, and 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 it seemed to go on an entirely different path, only to find himself drawn back to the land later on. We're speaking with Stephen Heyman, is the author of a new book out now from Norton. It's called The Planter of Modern Life, Louis Bromfield and the Seeds of a Food Revolution. We're going to continue with his uh, novel, uh, excuse me, his nonfiction book after the break, though Louis wrote a lot of novels, and sometimes this does seem like a novel because it's so wild. Uh, after the break, we're also going to hear another selection from Stephen's book, and then we'll be right back after these messages from the folks that make this station possible. You're listening to I-94 right here on WLPN. <laughs> This spring on I-94, Jeff Cohen, David Camp, Kevin Matson, Max Basora, Julia Sanchez, Chelsea Summers, Suleimana Donia, Fariha Wasson, Brontes Purnell, William Hazelgrove, and many, many more. Only on Lumpin's Books and Literature show, I-94, every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. Now, back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. The man who taught Bromfield how to garden the French way was named Victor Piquet. He was a strong, ruddy peasant who, regardless of the season, wrapped his belly in yards of flannel, contre la grippe. He was not very bright, Bromfield said, but he had a wonderful way with flowers, vegetables, and animals. Piquet was born in the Pas de Calais, spoke an ugly half-Lemish patois, and had never been to high school. Before he became Bromfield's full-time gardener, he worked as a day laborer on the renovation of the Presbyterian. But he had gardened since he was a boy, and he knew all the tricks handed down from generations of peasants who had raised half the food they consumed in small, confined plots. He had only one foible. If I did not watch him, he would put down half the garden in leeks, that backbone of all good French soups. When the ground thawed in March, Piquet and Bromfield dung in. They trucked out the cinders and broken bottles and trucked in topsoil. They arranged a series of small terraces leading up from the river to the highest level of the garden. They built trellises to support climbing plants. Next, they began transplanting the first flowers, delphiniums, blocks, perennial poppies. They trained roses in wisteria against the ancient walls. They converted the Red Roof Chapel into a garden shed. In its old well, they kept a brew of water and chicken manure that ripened like wine under Piquet's supervision. Beside the chapel, Brumfield wanted to plant a potager, a kitchen garden that would supply his family with fresh herbs and vegetables. He had only just started digging in this ground when his shovel uncovered something strange, fragments of some kind, pale, hard, but too porous to be rock. Brumfield realized he was digging in the chapel's graveyard. He did not hesitate, just worked the human bones he found back into the earth with a bit of chicken manure. He felt no qualms about thus treating consecrated ground, Ellen wrote. How could he, for nothing was nearer to his conception of God than the cycle in nature which begins with birth and ends with rebirth. They divided the potager into six neat small squares, separated with paths bordered by strawberry plants just like in Bosquet's garden. Bromfield chose to plant a mix of two strawberries, a luscious larger variety and the small perfumed fraise de bois. Inside the squares he planted vegetables, beets, carrots, eggplant, cabbage, and snowy heads of cauliflower that his children loved to eat roasted with melted butter and breadcrumbs. By the river, where the ground grew moist, they put in celery, leeks, and farthest down, a green mat of watercress. Bromfield was learning things from Piquet. He learned how to train peach trees into espaliers, so they grew in straight lines flush against the ancient stone wall, which, when warmed by the sun, helped to ripen the fruits. He learned how to stretch his garden's productivity into winter, growing escarole and endives under a big glass bells called cloches, so he could have fresh salads year-round. He learned the basics of intercropping, alternating cabbages and leeks with rows of asters and marigolds to their mutual benefit. In exchange, he showed Kay a few things about American horticulture, introducing him to bantam corn, Hubbard squash, and the ponderosa tomato, whose vines quickly grew up the ten-foot stone wall and down the opposite side to the ground. Everything they put down flourished. It was shocking. The trash heap, once cleared, concealed the land bristling with fertility. 
Bromfield did not need to dig up those old French bones to know that the banks of these rivers had been inhabited for centuries. He imagined previous generations of his neighbors listening out for the clop-clop of hooves, which would send them quickly to the door with broom and dustpan in case the passing horse had left behind the precious manure. His neighbors' gardens had been cultivated intensively, perhaps a thousand years, yet somehow they were more fertile than ever before. Why was this the case in France, he wondered, while in America a farmer could exhaust rich virgin soil in the space of one or two generations. Welcome back to I-94 on WLPN. As always, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. And Mr. Michael Sachs. Hello. And today we are speaking with the author Stephen Heyman. And just before the break, we heard another selection from his new book. It is called The Planter of Modern Life. It is a story of the forgotten author, I think that's fair, Louis Bromfield and the Seeds of a Food Revolution. Uh, before the break, Stephen, we were talking kind of about how Louis had taken a very successful career as a cosmopolitan journalist and changed into a self-described and self-styled prophet for agricultural evangelism. He formed a very big farm in Ohio. Uh, he hired people to work it, and he did uh, do some pretty radical things, actually, with it that turned out to have long-lasting effects. One of the things that Louis Bromfield did popularize that is still around today is the idea of soil restoration and, and conservation. Um, when he got the farm in Ohio, he discovered that rain uh, continually washed topsoil away from it, uh, making the land less fertile. And there was a continuing problem in America because of the way farmers actually worked the land or overworked it, that farms would lose fertility and whole patches, in fact, of American farmland in that period were turning uh, arid. Uh, of course, people, I think, will remember the Dust Bowl and the Okies. Can you talk a little bit about this uh, realization of Lewis's to kind of work in a new style on the land? Because this is something that actually uh, really persists to this day and is still in use. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, so he had all these romantic ideas about what farming could be coming from, you know, living in France and thinking about this idealized life that his grandparents had, um, in some kind of uh, agrarian glory day. But when he got to America and bought this large farm, um, he realized that you know, his soil was practically worthless. Um, he bought it in the wintertime when it was covered in snow, and when it melted, he had a, you know, a kind of rude awakening. He was overwhelmed, um, but at the time, you know, as you mentioned, there was, there was widespread... Um, uh, soil erosion all around the country, not only in the Dust Bowl, but also in the southern United States and across the Midwest. And um, to, to fix the problem, um, they created a kind of uh, this uh, soil conservation service, um, which had all of these demonstration farms around the country where they were pioneering new ideas um, about uh, um, basically how to, how to cut back erosion, how to deploy new machinery and new substances um, to increase uh, soil fertility. And Malabar became a kind of uh, um, a test case. So, um, Bromfield collaborated with people from the Soil Conservation Service, and he was amazed to see what, could, what, what was possible in just a few short years years, he really transformed Malabar from this eroded hill farm into a, a kind of paradise. It was interesting for me as well how so many of the things that he rallied against came true. Um, one of the things you say in, in the chapter in the White Room that Brownfield actually said was, you know, that corn was a vicious and, and destructive tyrant. And you know, yeah. we, we grow so much corn in this country now, and it's not for food. It's to feed animals. It's to make ethanol. Um, he also talked about, you know, farm subsidies. And you, you go into pretty pretty good detail. But another thing that he brought up, and it, it's, you know, been plaguing us forever, is, the, you know, the use of industrial fertilizer for farming. And these were all things. Absolutely. That, and although he may have been a little dramatic, you know, saying, oh, we're going to run out of food completely and have shortages and things. I, th I believe what he preached resonates to this day, and it's unfortunate. And a lot of times when I read these histories, 
rather it be political or environmental or social justice or any, it's like things don't really change all that much. And it's, it's a little depressing. <laughs> I completely agree. I had that feeling going through the story, you know, seeing that Bromfield was warning us however many decades ago, you know, there are echoes from in, in Bromfield's work of, of writers like, Wendell Berry and Joan Gasau, and then their echoes in, in, in Dan Barber and Michael Pollan's work more recently, you know, it, it's like, it's like people are trying to make the same point over and over again. I'm, I, I imagine there is a kind of process of slow absorption here, but one wonders or worries that it might be too little too late. Um, but I, you know, um, it is a shame that some of, Bromfield's rhetorical excesses um, maybe undercut the validity of his message. He was a sucker um, puncher, man. He, 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 couldn't, he couldn't resist yeah. a sucker punch. <laughs> but it got him attention, too. So I wonder, you know, I mean, Malabar Farm, um, which is today a state park in Ohio, is perhaps most famous as the uh, site of Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart's uh, wedding in 1945. But I think that, you know, um, I mean, Bromfield was close with Bogart. They had an interesting friendship. But he also understood that by hosting the celebrity wedding, he could get a lot more attention onto his farm and his whole conservation crusade by making Malabar more famous. So I think that to some extent, his, um, his, 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 there was a PR case to proceed the way he did. Yeah, and it was interesting. You know, I felt he was, in a weird way, something like a Zelig-like figure. He, he yes. makes a lot of connections between people that I would not have thought of been made between. You know, we started with Edith Wharton and Gertrude Stein. He's hanging out, as I mentioned, with Ann Sherry. <laughs> well, that, was going on. that was hilarious. I mean, obviously out of touch with reality now, but you know, some of Edith Wharton's viewpoints on some of his friends and things were, I mean, I was laughing, they were terrible, but they were actually so dated that they were funny. Yeah. And and he's he's hanging out with, you know, Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart were the couple of that era. There's no question about it. I mean, everywhere the guy went, he did this. He was was the Maharaji of India. Yeah. You know, he's, yeah, he's in India. He's meeting the Maharaji. He's playing poker in in late night with his wife. He must've been, and I guess this is what I'm bringing up. He, he was a gifted, seller and a gifted PR person, he must have also been a very magnetic personality and a very likable personality. And this is what kind of, I think, you get to the in the end of your book, he starts to become a very unlikable personality. And he starts to have difficult relationships with members of his own family. And I think, you know, today Malabar is a state park in Ohio. It, it's not a model farm. It's not what he anticipated. And he himself, um, after certain people passed away, he also lost his way. I, you know, before we leave, I do want to talk about Mr. Hawkins, who I would argue in reading your book had the kind of relationship that, I, you know, Gordon Lish had with Raymond Carver. He was basically a co-writer totally. in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happened to turn him from, you know, this person that seemingly everybody wanted to be with to somebody that his own family couldn't stand? It's a very good question. I mean, I do think that the, there is, a, there is a, a zest, a real love for life in all of its manifestations in, in, in Bromfield, you know, through his, you know, 40s. Um, and then he turns a little darker. Um, I mean, I think that to some extent, he becomes more narrowly focused on his 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 crusade to change agriculture. Um, but I think to some extent, as he you know he gets sick, he starts losing money. He starts becoming um, the object of kind of ridicule, um, and um, uh, he sees his literary status kind of erode. Some of his business schemes don't work out as he would like. Um, And I think that he's starting to realize that, you know, he's he's becoming kind of irrelevant. And then he has Malabar, 
this beautiful um, landscape that he's created, which means so much to him, and he's so attached to it, but he can't share it even with those who are closest to him. Like his, um, he had he had two daughters who wanted to become farmers and who married men who who were interested in agriculture. But he eventually his inflexibility and his temper led them both to to, to leave the farm, and so. Um, the story takes a sad uh, a, a turn at the end. Um, I would argue it a, a, a kind of interesting turn. Um, but you have a, a very kind of effervescent, lighthearted figure um, who, who who loses that at some point in his in his journey. There's also the case of you know when his daughter marries uh, a Jewish man, um, and he had yeah. not been known for anti-Semitism. In fact. I think we mentioned earlier he'd been rather prescient about uh, yeah. the state of the Jews in Europe. But that didn't extend to his own family. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I thought this was kind of a fascinating aside in the story. But basically, um, you know, Bromfield, he, he had a, a, a kind of polite... Uh, run-of-the-mill kind of aversion to Jews in the 1920s, I guess you'd call it. Uh, but, um, you know, I think he described some Jewish characters uncharitably in his novels, but nothing that was unfortunately unusual for that period. But by the time he, uh, the 1930s and 40s come around, um, he actually turns into a great defender of, of the Jewish people um, and uh, chairs many committees that are tr and tries to get his influential friends in Washington to do more to stop the, the Nazi slaughter of European Jews. Um, and he's given a, an award by the state of Israel when that country is founded in 1948. But um, uh, when his daughter, his youngest daughter, Ellen, uh, brings home um, this boy she's met, um, a greengrocer's son from Brooklyn, a guy named Carson, who's Jewish, Bromfield takes an immediate disliking to him. And in a long letter to Ellen, he tries to make the claim that it's not because of this kid's Jewish background, but, 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 but rather a, a difference in tradition, custom. Um, but it, 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 it's pretty clear that, that uh, there is an, an element of anti-Semitism, a kind of, his, he had a conception of who his, his daughter should marry, and, um, and Carson didn't fit the bill. He was an early NIMBY, but that, that's another story. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. uh, Stephen, in, the, in your acknowledgments in the back, you mentioned you, you thank the uh, members of the Bromfield family. Will you tell us and our listeners a little bit about what that was like meeting, you know, his relatives and how, what was their sentiment towards him yeah. now? I know it's a little distant because he's question. been dead for a while, <clears throat> but. Yeah. So um, his youngest daughter, Ellen, was still alive when I, when I was researching the book. She, she left Malabar in the 50s with Carson because of some of these battles that she was having with her father. And she um, she went down. There was some like uh, conservation-minded businessmen in Brazil who had, who wanted to start a Brazilian Malabar, um, and so she worked on that farm for a while. And then she and her husband got their own place, um, and 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 then she proceeded to have this kind of amazing. Um, like Brazilian version of of Bromfield's life, where she became a, a novelist and a newspaper columnist, and had a, a beautiful farm, and all kinds of people visited. Um, she she was fairly well known in Brazil. Um, so I I went down there, met her, met Carson, interviewed them. It was an extraordinary experience. You know, I walked into their beautiful house, and I saw an oil painting of of Bromfield when he was a young man. And then I was going through their photo albums, and there was a, a picture of, of, of Bromfield from, like, 1927 on the beach in Saint-Jean-de-Luz with Ernest Hemingway. And it was just, it, it was incredible to get that kind of living link to the story. Sadly, Ellen died uh, a few months before my book came out, so she never got a chance to read it, which was... Uh, kind of heartbreaking for me. Um, but her, her husband, Carson, who features quite prominently in the book, um, 
read it and it meant a lot to him. And, and of course, that was super meaningful for me. One of the characters I want to talk about, and, you know, uh, this is, a, a by the way, for listeners, this is a very dense uh Enjoyable book. I enjoyed it at least. I thought very it was very enjoyable. Yeah, I thought it was a great but read. There's a lot of information. <laughs> a lot of information. We could talk about this for a couple hours, and we haven't even really scraped the surface of, of gardening and soil conservation. But one of the people I, I did want to talk about was uh, Bromfield's largely unacknowledged uh, collaborator, a gay man named Hawkins, mm. who, uh, in a weird way, and I, you know, you kind of allude to this, but you don't really say it. Uh, Bromfield had a very complex relationship with this man. Hawkins was the life of the party in France. He was uh, an au pair. He was a nanny. He uh, basically also, however, wrote basically that everything that Bromfield had jotted down in his scratchy doctor's longhand, he would type up. And it is notable yeah. that when Hawkins died, Bromfield's books suddenly crashed in popularity, which led me to think that he had been a de facto collaborator and author with Bromfield on these works. Bromfield's reaction to Hawkins' death was also very strange to me. Uh, yeah. You note in the book that he, he said, oh, I'm, I'm something to the effect of, oh, I'm glad I don't have to deal with him anymore, which struck me as uh, very false. I wonder if you could talk about that, because this seems to be kind of a, a key to understanding Bromfield a little bit as a person as well. Yeah, um, that's a great question. George is a, is a really lovable um character um he is the life of the party he's always quick with a joke um um you know i couldn't really get at who he was underneath all of the kind of you know anecdotes about him um he didn't leave much in the way of correspondence or um you know journal entries um so i i, I had to kind of read between the lines, um, there was a lot of hearsay and a lot of kind of gossip about um, George and, and the kind of relationship he had with the Bromfield family. Um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know whether when Bromfield made that kind of cutting comment about George after he died to his daughter Ellen, and she records it in, his, in her memoir. Um, I, I don't know whether that's the whole story. I have to believe that Bromfield loved this guy. I think, you know, they had, they had lived through so much together and they were absolutely collaborators and, as well as friends. They would go to Hollywood, they'd rent a villa, you know, they, they'd hang out with lots of people. Um, they, uh, he, George edited all of his novels and, and, and he stopped writing novels. He wrote one novel after George died. Um, you know, the Hollywood work dried up. So George was like an agent slash editor slash, I don't know. Um, I think that the the financial loss um, was huge uh, after George left him. Um, but the dynamics of the relationship were complicated. At one point, uh, the reason why I think that he meant more to Bromfield than Bromfield led on to his daughter is there's a letter that, Bromfield's wife Mary sent to him, where she talks about the three of them as a kind of uh, unit, as a kind of, uh, I don't know if it's like a sexual or romantic element, like a menage a trois or something, but like that they were, that they were so close in, uh, as to be a kind of, uh, um, yeah, like a unit or a triangle of some kind, a, a triangle of affection. Um, so, it's. I wish I had a more satisfying answer for you on this. Yeah. It's. It is a very intriguing part of the story. Well, and it's an intriguing book. We've been speaking with Stephen Heyman. He's the author of The Planter of Modern Life, Louis Bromfield and the Seeds of a Food Revolution. It's out now from Norton. I know it is available everywhere. It's also available in good libraries, which you should go and support. Stephen, thanks so much for speaking to us today here at I-94. We really appreciate it, and we really enjoyed the book. Yeah, so thanks, thanks for making Dan. time. Thanks a lot, Stephen. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you all. Stephen, before we let you go, do you have anything else coming up? I know this project, you know, just came out last year, but what are you working on next for our listeners? Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm, um, you know, 2020 was a very complicated year for me, also a very fertile year. I guess that's the word. Um, my wife and I had a, a baby boy oh, in literally. April, the same month that this book came out. Congratulations. Congratulations. <laughs> um, 
So we've been dealing with the aftermath of that um, and moving, and I am working on some things, although they're too kind of embryonic to talk about. Uh, not another baby yet, <laughs> but another book. <laughs> um, yeah. Wonderful stuff. Well, good luck. Again, once again, we've been speaking with Stephen Heyman. We do recommend The Planner of Modern Life, Louis Bromfield, and the Seeds of a Food Revolution. And, of course, we'll be back next week on I-94 with more from the world of books and literature. Hey, thanks so much, and thanks so much, Stephen, for being with us today. Thanks, Stephen. Take care, man. Thank you. This is great. May 21st fell on a Monday, not traditionally the most festive day of the week, but the weather was bright and clear, and Bacall remembered that the big house was shining. With every table waxed and the brass polished, it was truly beautiful. Newspapers across the country were following the event closely. Today's the day, wrote one. The plot, matrimony. Cast of characters, Langorius Lauren Bacall and Merchant of Menace Humphrey Bogart. The setting, Malabar, novelist Louis Bromfield's 1,100-acre estate. The couple rose early for their blood test and the visit to the Richland Country Courthouse to get the license. Bogey and I were ridiculous, holding hands like teenagers. I almost was one. After they returned, Bacall started to feel nervous. She ran a bath. Following an old tradition, she laid out something blue, a slip with her name embroidered on it, something old, a bracelet, something borrowed, a handkerchief from her mother, and something new, everything else. She put on a two-piece belted doeskin suit and wrapped a dark scarf around her neck. Hawkins knocked on the door, calling her by the same name Bogart used. Are you ready, baby? In her simple outfit, a concession to wartime fashion standards, she looked even younger and skinnier than on screen. Bacall and Hawkins hugged each other, and then she gave him the ring and felt herself to begin to shake with a mix of fear and excitement. Hope's at the piano, ready to start, Hawkins said. Nanny White, Bacall's mother Natalie, the farm workers, and their families all had assembled in the grand entry hall, which was decorated by Bromfield with white snapdragons and tall ferns. Hawkins said that Bogart was getting itchy waiting for her. Shall I give the signal? Okay, she said, but then she told him to wait a minute. She had to run to the bathroom. Where is she? snapped Bogart from downstairs. Hold it, replied Hawkins, adding with romantic discretion, she's in the can. Bacall emerged. Hawkins led her to the top of the stairs. Hope began to play the wedding march from Longgren as they descended. My knees shook so, I was sure I'd fall down. She caught sight of Bogart in his plain gray flannel suit and dark tie. He had a few martinis to calm down before the ceremony and now looked to her so vulnerable and handsome. Bromfield, the best man, towered over him in a blue three-piece suit with a flower in his lapel. His favorite boxer, Prince, the only dog invited to the wedding party, had sat himself down at the center of the altar on Judge Schlettler's feet. Bacall took her place besides Bogart as the judge began the ceremony. She remembered feeling so nervous that the enormous, beautiful white orchids I was holding were shaking themselves to pieces. She saw tears coming down Bogart's face. When it was over, he leaned in to kiss her lips, but she shyly turned her cheek. Bogart said, Hello, baby, and then she hugged him. At the end of the ceremony, Bacall turned her back to the audience and tossed her bouquet, which Hope caught. Then Bacall wrote, All hell broke loose with the press. Cameras were whipped out, the outsiders were let in, the cake was brought out, three beautiful tears with bride and groom standing under an arbor on top, and we were photographed from all angles, cutting the cake with Lewis watching, me feeding Bogey a piece, champagne was flowing, we all went outside for more photos. Lewis finally could stand the blue suit no longer and changed into his dirty old man of the soil corduroys, and newsreel cameras followed us around the farm. Every photographer in the world was there, said Ed Clark from Life magazine. God, there was just a swarm of us. For a gift, Bromfield gave the couple a boxer puppy and one acre of land at Malabar for them to build a cottage, which turned out to be only a symbolic gift since they never did. But Bacall fantasized about it. The picture was always complete with me in an apron carrying a milk bucket. The celebrity wedding accomplished something that Bromfield, despite his stature as a novelist and a pundit, could not have achieved on his own. Now, practically every American knew the name of Malabar Farm. is Lumping Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Stephen Heyman, author of The Planter of Modern Life, out now from Norton. This episode originally aired on March 9th, 2021. I-94 is a Lumpin Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.